0: Ah, oh, ladies and gentlemen, what a world we are living in where aliens can be shown on Mexican government live streams for four hours and nobody gives a fuck. <laughs> in the words, Public Enemy's Chuck D. we in the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you all had a good week in circumstances. Literally, just hours before I record this, I was, I just, I've just been, just been looking at it. Just, you know, just, uh, and I, I just, just don't care. <laughs> I just, I don't care. I feel like, I feel like it's bit. If I go on X, if I go on Twitter right now, um. It, 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 won't, it won't even be trending. I guarantee you. Uh, literally. Ben Stokes, Marina, Sip, hashtag Reading FC. Don't know what's happening in Reading. Uh, Vine, hashtag Inaction Man, hashtag Aliens. There we go. At number seven in the United Kingdom trends. As I record this episode on a Wednesday at 6.38pm. Aliens are number seven in the UK, trending. See what I mean? It just... Let me go on Reddit. I feel like it's probably more... That's probably more... It, alien shit is more, you know, Reddit, you know what I mean? So let's let's, let's have a look at the Reddit uh, popular. Here we go, Reddit popular. Right, here we go. Um, okay, there you go. First, first one trending today, non-human, quote-unquote, non-human bodies in Mexico. There you go. Um, but yeah, just... Just, it's outstanding. I just, I, I just don't think people care. Um And, oh, there you go. It's, uh, it's, okay, well, this is from r slash aliens, so, I mean, they should care. But, yeah, more UF more photos from the Mexico UFO hearings. Um And, yeah, those are, looks pretty fucking solid. I mean, these are, like, you know, medical-looking-ass uh, x-rays and shit. And, uh, yeah, it looks, um, looks proper. I don't know, man. I just... I, this is the thing. Like I feel like we're in such a state of um, collective paralysis um, that it, it just doesn't... It, even if aliens come down right now on some Omicron Persei 8 shit, if you know, you know. And if they if just came down like that, we'd still be keeping it moving. People... Aliens could land in the middle of 10 Downing Street right fucking now and give a press conference and I'll still not give a shit it just nothing matters anymore man overall just nothing matters we're as a species collectively just in a slow car crash waiting to happen whether it's nuclear war whether it's the pending climate apocalypse whether it's something in the middle what something is just gonna kill us all in the next hundred years. I'm pretty freaking sure, um probably in my lifetime. i'm I'm pretty confident, right? Something's just gonna fucking go to shit. bro I, I just, I, it needs to be this needs to be like turn the millennium, right? Where UFO shit was like proper, proper underground. and if that if if we had this shit now, if we had that shit back then, then yeah, we'd be caring about it heavy. The funny thing is, out of out of all of it, and the only thing I come away with this genuinely is an opinion, is that fucking know sci-fi writers pretty much nailed it, didn't they? Uh, it looks like honestly, low key, it looks like a taller brother of that alien from Men in Black. I think it was Men in Black Two, um, where like it was the it was the alien inside the dude's head. Um, yeah, I think, it was, yeah, it was co- Cockroach, in it, So, uh, it was a Cockroach 1, so yeah, so, no, that's Men in Back 1, so yeah, yeah, it's just a, you know, small dude in there, small dude in the dude's head, that's, that's what it looks like, but just taller. Um, so, yeah, big ups, big up sci-fi writers, big up sci-fi, you know, anybody, the people in that realm, they fucking nailed it, they co- they called that shit, <laughs> it's pretty fucking spot on, um, but yeah, man, it's just, ah, just... Just don't care. <laughs> just, just don't really care that much. It's just wild how I don't care that much. Um, but yeah. It is what it is, man. Aliens exist, I guess. Um, yeah. Just, I don't know, just 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 feel like it should have this weight to it, but it just really doesn't. Just, just really doesn't have that weight. But anyway, apart from that, I feel pretty solid. I shaved today, so I feel pretty good. A little bit of fresh cut confidence on that front. Feel a bit better. Um, but yeah, man, just uh, just chilling, just working on working on things, just trying to keep working. And uh, yeah, hope you're all uh, doing the same and just keep doing what you're doing and uh, taking care of yourself, whatever you maybe do. All right, so let's jump right in. We have two TVs, journalism, and a music segment for this episode. Really good set of pieces right here. Really enjoying it. Uh, really enjoy it. Really going to enjoy getting into these. And with that said, uh, formalities before we begin. Ha ha! Nearly got you. Uh, uh, what is it? Fucking <laughs> <Get> up. <laughs> Email, <laughs> socials, writing, all of that, all of that, all of that in the full show notes, as well as the music and other um, uh, podcasts on the Five VPN. Did a Hieroglyphics episode on DITD and uh doing a topic next episode i don't really mind spoiling it because i don't really know if there's any much crossover between that between the shows but if you're a DITD listener buckle up for next next episode because we are going to get into let's do something very different actually we're going to get into we're going to get into a whole tv show um in top boy um which uh kind of well finished last week dropped its final season last week on netflix um and uh as as watchers me and Ben are going to talk about it um from just a well i, I want to talk about it from a very existential perspective um and yeah just just dig right deep into it i feel like honestly if i was going to do a podcast on a tv show and just do like a full on like oral history or like a or like a long term critique of it um it would be top boy i will be completely honest like it's not it's not my favorite show of all time right but it's so fascinating to me like the whole thing is so fascinating just how it came how it came through um where its place in you know uk tv at the time in 2011 um why the fuck it dipped why channel 4 canceled it why netflix bought it back and then why netflix didn't really put any push on it this especially for this season boggles my mind um but anyway yeah there's that i also actually did do a spoiler free review um so if you want to click the uh, writing link uh, in my in the full description um give that a spin it's, it's right there up top spoiler free review um if you are interested in that um i did some writing who knew um but anyway uh what's the thing yeah let the music <laughs> let the music drop <laughs> and let's get into the show a week where Wandsworth prison escapee Daniel Abed Khalif is recaptured in Chis- 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 Chiswick, 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 Chiswick. <laughs> um, the funniest thing about that is that people just found him hot and I t- you lot got some true crime brain, seriously. Like there's so many, there's too many people that have true crime, true crime brain right now because the amount of people that just, just find people hot and then like, do not, just completely not care about the fact that they're just, like, mass murderers or shit. It's just, like, it, it, it boggles my mind how it's just like, wait, hold on. It's kind of fine, though. It's like, it's, I don't know if you're being serious or not. Um, a lot of, um, of weather-related um, this week. Uh, 6.8 magnitude. Earthquake hits Morocco. Um, I think it's, like, 2,000-plus now dead. Um, UK um, went through... <laughs> Seven days of thirty-degree weather, um, and that's the first time that's ever happened in uh, recorded history. And um, can't lie to you, it was, it was kind of fire. I was I was kind of enjoying it. It was very. I mean, I woke up I woke up every day in a puddle of sweat. But apart from that, like the nights, oh, the nights were so nice. The nights were beautiful. Um, Hong Kong flooded um, after heaviest hourly rainfall on record since 1884. Um, and lastly, uh, Spanish soccer federation president Luis. Rubiales resigns after Kiss Scandal, which the funny thing is, if he just apologized the day after um, and just kept it sincere as possible, just went like, you know, sorry, my bad, should not have done that. I, you know, profusely apologized to Miss Hamoso, etc, etc, etc. He would still be in the job right now. But no, he decided to be the like, I'm not resigning, rah, rah, rah. Doing all that shit, his mum like going on fucking hunger strike and then getting hospitalized because of it, like a fucking dipshit. Um just just didn't need didn't need to do all that. You didn't need to be a lightning rod for this shit. You're you're on the wrong side of history, my guy. There was no point in doing it. And now you're out of a job. Now let's be real, he'll get another job, he's fine, he'll be okay. Um, I do not I'm not gonna uh, he would not be on the, like, you know, wherever the Spanish version of the job center is. Um, he's okay. But um, yeah, still, still, just eat. if you just apologized the next day, it would have been fine. Like, you would still be in the job and everybody would have moved on. Um, but then you just decided to try and, you know, I don't know, plant a flag for misogyny or something. I don't know, whatever the fuck you did. Um, and there was also um, Libya um, suffering as well. Um, I, I mean, I have only five that I tried doing a week where, but. That's another significant weather event, um, significant climate event uh, of this week. Anyway, let's jump, Brian, to a bit of journalism. Um, this is about comment journalism, which um, obviously you know I try to, uh, I, I try not to um, feature constantly on 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 this show. Um, you know, I get into the if if I really really respect the writer, then you know I'm going for it. And funny enough, I'm, one, the one I'm, the one I'm going to reference, um, and one, the article I'm going to read is from a common journalist I really respect, and I really like reading. Um, so this is by Miss Moya Lothian McLean uh, via Novara Media. It's an opinion piece. It's called "British Comment Journalism is in the Gutter." Signed, a common journalist. See even the title. She's just amazing. I love it. Um, anyway, let's jump out. Right Since I was 19. I've been in the business of professional opinion giving. This isn't a fact that engenders much pride. The humble op-ed, opposite the editorial, if you want to be formal, is one of the lowest common denominators in journalism. Yet, it still had further to fall when over the weekend, right-wing political commentator Dominique Samuels revealed the staff of the Daily Mail has, had been ghostwriting at least some of the columns she produces for the title. This sort of pra- little practice was exposed by Samuels herself in the wake of the traditional rad- racialized media furore that always follows London's annual ca- Car- oh, you Caribbean, Caribbean uh, celebration Notting Hill Carnival. Despite, have, uh, despite Samuels having uh, made her name as a black person willing to bat for socially conservative views and position marginalised demographics as ideological threats to Great Britain, Think frequent invocations of the trans lobby and critical race theory. She wasn't having this one. Outrage about the quote-unquote violence of Carnival was quote-unquote manufactured, she said. How did Samuels finally work it out, one wondered. Well, because last year the Mail had approached her to be the face of a quote, ghost-written, negative, verging on racist piece. unquote about about Carnival. Carnival. Eventually, Samuel said she turned down the offer as it was, quote a complete misrepresentation of why I witnessed whilst I was there, unquote. She then actually wrote her own column, by herself, on the event, she claimed only for it to be so heavily edited that she pulled the piece all together. Naturally, this opened up questions about other columns penned by Samuels for various male titles. When asked, she admitted that at least one other piece bearing her name, an article dismissing Meghan Markle's claims of rubbing up against racist attitudes within the British monarchy, owed nothing to her beyond the byline attached to it. More concerning still, Samuels insisted at first that it was, quote, pretty much standard, unquote, for British newspapers to ghostwrite copy for their guest columnist. It isn't, or at least it's not established as a standard, open practice for any of the broadsheet titles I've worked for. Testimony from Mirror journalist Lorraine King and Rachel Charlton-Daily also countered Samuels' assertion from the tabloid side, Alongside the Mail, Samuels had written, quote unquote, written uh, multiple columns for the Daily Express and both co author bylines for The Sun. God, it's just the holy trinity of shit. Um, it doesn't take a genius to draw a conclusion about where and how Samuels collected enough evidence to declare it uh, a standard for contentious articles to be written in house, then matched with a face who might be seen to better weather pushback against such opinions. In a country, with more robust mechanisms of holding its media to account, Samuels' zmi- zmi- admission would be the beginning of a scandal. Sure, she may have signed off on having such content published under her name, but why is the name Dominique Samuels so valuable to the likes of the Mail? What does the identity of this 24-year-old copywriter, unknown to the majority of the country, offer the Mail that they can't get elsewhere? Thanks to the reductive nature of our public discourse, it seems obvious that attaching racist opinions like Notting Hill Carnival is a uniquely violent event to a young black face offers a form of protection. It's not racist because a black person is saying it. A youth will in-touch one. It's their lived experience. An individual lived experience is a king. So, y- <laughs> so Yabu sucks. Yabu sucks. Everything, okay, everything collective is dead. And only the self can survive. Also, racism doesn't really exist systematically. That's critical race theory, which is a fairy tale favoured by the woke left in order to keep black people in a perpetual state of victimhood, which isn't all, which also isn't racism. That's something else. Anyway, trans people and so on. Contrary to popular myth, there never was a golden age of British press, but the quality of our media has certainly undergone a notable decline in the past half century. The advent of digital media was supposed to remove barriers to entry. In a lopsided way, it did, but without an accompanying and much-needed injection of cash. Instead, the pluralism of the media landscape shrunk. The last major new UK daily national newspaper to be launched was The Independent in 1986, and initially created as an independent challenger in the news market. It was sold to the billionaire Alexander Lebedev in 2010, and now only survives in digital form. What was left... Uh, what was left was a smaller circle of newsrooms with scant resources, blank website space to fill, and access to a whole host of untapped voices by the rise of blogging. Rather than... <laughs> big up blogging, uh, top boy, spoiler free review review, on, on, my, on my fifth element, medium. <laughs> Rather than pluck these people for in-house training, they were instead drafted in as freelancers to expand on topics they might have previously written about on their own platforms. This may have started as a vaguely interesting exercise back in the 2010s, but by 2023, it mostly consists of editors searching X formerly Twitter for who has public uh, for who has publicly com- commented on some made up trend like quiet quitting and commissioning 800 words remuneration ninety quid from a 22 year old city university graduate to desperate uh, desperate to snag a full time role in a newsroom at any cost. Age is a crucial factor here. There's a reason so much comment is literally coming from the mouths of babes. Entry routes into journalism are in a dire state. Even those blessed with all the advantages that increase the likelihood of making it private schooling and its accompanying social network, a Russell Group education, a familial financial cushion to support entry level media salaries will speak of the struggle just to get their foot in the door. But if you don't possess these privileges, comment can be your best shot. Again, your first byline especially if you've not been spat out by uh, an extortionate journalism grad scheme, which at least furnishes you some basic training and confidence, if nothing else. For comment writing, you don't need the knowledge of how to craft a right of reply or send an FOI. Uh, All one requires is an opinion and the ability to express it in half good English. (laughs) Of those who take this route, some may become very good at it, especially if they are paired with an editor who takes them under their wing. A rare few may develop their skills beyond monetizing their own thoughts, whether through mentorship or dogged self-teaching, but many others will find themselves confined to serving as freelance dreck correspondents. Unsurprisingly, this burden falls disproportionately on those who don't have the room to hustle at these crucial early career stages to move to London for the promise of scoring a few minimum wage news desk shifts or mind themselves in debt for the sake of journalism masters uh, that doesn't guarantee a job upon graduation. That is to say, it's the poor, disabled and ethnic minorities who are more likely to find themselves limited to comment. We're often opinions for hire rather than talent to invest in. That's a bar. I say this with no malice. I've spent a considerable part of my career as one of these writers. It's a an industry where low cost, low effort, and low quality comment writing has become not just acceptable but dominant. Time and budget stretched editors on an all-encompassing quest to hit traffic targets will almost always opt for reactive opinion pieces. Me. You may even be thinking, I'm reading one right now. Indeed, in the age of individualism, opinion and personal experience is king and its feelings over facts. Unfortunately, this just contributes to a climate where trust in British media is at an all-time low. There is a way to counter such a culture. Pay for media, invest in platforms doing things differently. They in turn can divest from churnalism. Churnalism, okay, I like that. Churnalism, but the public is actually just churnalism. That's that's great. They're just yeah, yeah. They're just you know having to churn shit out just because you know traffic, right? And traffic gives you money. Uh, but the public are reluctant to choose this option. Sixty-five percent say nothing could make them pay for their online news. Instead, they remain gorging on comments, the junk food of journalism consumed at high speed, leaving the reader curiously unsatiated, even angry, thanks to bland, repetitive, and barely-researched arguments. It was hard to imagine the medium could have been further discredited, but hats off to the mail, it always manages to raise the bar. Outstanding. (laughs) Outstanding. And yeah, you know, it's coming from someone who's, you know, made made their, or or at least tired their living, and in some ways continues to do so, doing that. And, you know, I tried it, I guess. I guess the, you know, when everything I do in The Fifth Element uh, from a writing perspective is purely just because I feel like doing it. Um, It's, yes, probably all opinion, right? It's all opinion on that front. But i I talk about the things I, you know, want to talk about. I don't feel like I have to write about every single topic that comes across, you know, that comes across uh, my phone or whatever. That's what Twitter's for. Um, well, that's what it previously was for. Um, in, on, in all honesty, I'm probably. It's fascinating how I'm closer to dipping Twitter than Instagram. Which, if you told me I was going to, I was thinking that a year ago, uh, I'd be thinking no fucking way because i hate instagram and i still in some ways do hate instagram um but yeah obviously you know shit has become shitter so this uh, is what is on that front but um you know i don't feel it, this is the issue right i don't feel that my opinion needs to be heard on every single thing um i do my podcast i do this podcast i sometimes write um and that's it <laughs> You know, and everything else I keep to myself. I'm, I'm, I'm always watching things that give me some form of education. I've got literally, as I um, look at my screen right now, I've got my, I've got my recording, but also, I've also got several, you know, YouTube videos um, uh, uh, scheduled up or just, um, or just um, stacked up, ready to go. I've got like a six-part um, video essay on house because I enjoy house and I like. I would like a, you know, some form of, uh, you know, uh, critique on it. Um, oligarchy. I think that's actually an Avira Media one. Uh, ancient Rome to you, Edwards. That's also an Ovir Media one. Uh, griftonomics from Tom Nichols. Uh, one about American Pie, and I think it's called the cult and American Pie and the cult of misogyny. Um, and also got an FD signifier video uh, that ju- just dropped recently called "Fuck the Police." So you know, most of those are purely. Just because I want p- smart people to talk, or just people that know about the certain subject to talk about it, and I want to learn about it, right? And that's 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 what I've got literally top the uh, 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 scheduled up on my on my on my screen right now. I'm gonna give those a watch at some point in time. Um, they're there, ready for me to watch. And when I get to them, I'll get to them. Um, and it's funny how you know YouTube actually feels like a a place where that's kind of where I can go now. Um, to not get kind of a, a kind of journalism, not a traditional sense, but I don't know, it's very interesting. But uh, yeah, common journalism. I try. It. I you know I obviously do it now and again. Um, but it's 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 very scarce, and I don't do it for money. I don't try and search for money doing that kind of thing. I made an attempt after graduating, and uh, I just couldn't be asked anymore it wasn't for me so uh yeah you know it is what it is but you know salutes all the budding journalists out there trying to do that thing man. really honestly good fucking luck <laughs> All right, let's keep it swiftly moving. Um, to first of two TV topics. Um, this is a uh, a uh, little, little little solid piece of journalism, actually, right here. Speaking of, <laughs> um, uh, I think funny enough, uh, the rest of these articles are pretty much I, I consider you know solid journalism. I guess the last one is kind of opinion, but yeah, I don't know. But anyway. Um, this is by Thomas Hobbs, it's by a timeout. it's called uh, Inside Kano's Kingdom, the London estate that made Top Boy what it is, and as you know, um, big Top Boy fan here, um, always fascinated, literally, I was just talking about it at the, uh, at the beginning of the show, um, but yeah, I've always wanted to know kind of like the in, ins and outs of how they even, you know, made Summer House, Summer House. Um but yeah, apparently it's in Sumunda Estate in, uh, in London, so let's, uh, let's get into it. Final season of Top Boy arrives on Netflix this week, uh, with the show last week, uh, with the show's massive global fan base eagerly tuning in. A filled with drug dealers who can't decide if they want to hug it out or kill one another, London's fictional Summer House estate, the rivalry between Ashy, Wal- Ashy Walters' uh, Duchesne Hill and UK rap legend Kano's Gerard Sully Sullivan, I didn't know his na- first name was Gerard, comes to a head in the finale. As well as powerful messages about gentrification, American class life, in action sequences that go for Michael Bay, it has another less well-known key ingredient, Isle of Dogs' Samunda Estate. The show's main filming location, Samunda, has stood in for Summer House Estate since Top Boy moved from Channel 4, its home in 2011-2013, to Netflix. Prior to that, Summer House was Elephant and Castle's Haygate Estate. Built in 1967, Samunda House is around uh, 1,500 residents across 11 and a bit acres, the juxtaposition between its six-story concrete blocks and 25-store tower, Kelson House, with Canary Wharf's opulent skyscrapers in the near distance, feels almost Dickensian. Given the show's themes, it's perfect somehow standing. During filming, Sharon Kla- Clash- Clachar, Clachar? Clach- Clachar. Uh, Island Services Manager at One Housing, the private firm that oversees Simonda House, has been ever- an ever-present bridge between the production and residents. She chats to locals, calming any anxieties about the show and keeps them informed. I've had to explain to hundreds of residents that it's going to be filming in their home at 3am, she says. I'll make sure everyone is happy and show them that they are going to be part of something special. Thanks to the Top Boy has had rare success uh, to locations across Samunda. From the untidy kitchens of local residents, so those cups full of tea and, ash, and full ashtrays you see in the show are not props, to the estate's main atrium, where street lamps bounce flickering lights off imposing concrete at night. Uh, to uh, To build on those bonds of trust, the production has welcomed residents on set, giving them the chance to work on everything from design to cinematography. Crucially, Samunda is never filmed as a hopeless place in Top Boy. Some of the wide lens framing is ever reminiscent of a mythical kingly court from an old medieval set movie. In one early scene in season three, Barry Fuck! I don't I've, to this day. I don't know how to say his name. I is I, I I always struggle with, you know, the the super Irish names. I always struggle. There was a I'm just going to say Barry just to not butcher. But there was a there was a girl from my primary school, and her name was Kiva. Guarantee you won't get that spelling. Just I'm just going to leave it at that because I'm not even trying to attempt to spell it. But it starts with a C. And it doesn't end with the A. <laughs> all right, um, <laughs> Barry's a terrifying uh, Barry K. Uh, Babyface villain Johnny knowingly refers to Samunda. Uh, Samuda, I've been saying Samunda all this time. Samuda, sorry. As a kingdom in it, uh, producer Tina Pavlik agrees. Making the area look regal was definitely a focus. It's such an incredible location with its palpable community spirit. So you want to capture that. From shooting the Greasy Spoon scenes, where Duchesne and Sully meet at number one cafe in London Fields, to using Dalston's Ridley Road Market for for the gang's deals, Top Boy has always prided itself in depicting the real London. It's a show about authenticity, says Pavlik. Other than season two, where we got hit by COVID and had to build sets, we've always shot on occasion. The final season is going out with a bang, which created its own challenges when it was filmed in 2022. Some of the summer house scenes were so explosive that the film had to shift to Clapham's practically empty plumber road estate, where the chances of keeping the 30 or so residents up at night were much lower. It's a cautionary tale about cycles of violence where those call up are forced to reckon with the destruction they've caused. The new season is about the importance of fighting for your own community fighting for your community, and knowing its worth, says Pavlik. It's also about working out that, while joining a gang, might seem like the only route in life it doesn't have to be. The season's opening episode features immigration officers detaining a teenager and summer house residents coming together to block the police fans that are trying to take him away. Samuda Estate rarely matches those levels of violence or drama in real life, but Klachar, uh, that name just fascinates me, Klachar, uh, believes that local residents would react similarly if the Home Office treated one of its residents with equal aggression. There are residents who feel the approach to immigration is over the top, she says. If the script played out in reality and say John next door was taken away by immigration and the police were being unruly, they definitely wouldn't turn a blind eye. Dodd Boy's accompanying sense of glamour isn't lost on the estate residents, rap superstar Drake. Executive John the side visits Samuda during film in 2022 and happily chatted with locals. I expect signs of cast members have always caused a stir too, says so chart. An old lady returned home with her shopping and saw Ashley Waters dressed as Duchenne walking out the door. She screamed and dropped her bags in shock. If I ask Top Boy, it has—I ask if Top Boy has ever inspired copycat violence. After all, this is an area where crime rates already run above the national average. There were those concerns, but we've honestly had no reports of increased crime or game-related incidents," says Kuchar, who views the show as a cautionary tale. There's been uh, the resident complaining about disruption, but the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive. Top Boy's legacy for the Samuda Estate is one of new pride. On screen, it paints a bleak picture of urban life. Off it, its impact has been nothing but positive. The residents are proud to know that their estate is being used for Top Boy's. There was a time when, as the opening on this island was a big deal. Now, with next door to Canary Wharf and have Netflix filming in the area, it's been truly transformational. So that's very nice, um, apart from me fucking up the estate name for uh, half the article, but yeah man, um, I, I really, I think the the locations are so necessary, um, especially when you're doing a show like Top Boy, I feel like if, if people can't, if local, if, pe- if people can't name or or like go on Google Maps and actually point out, oh shit, that's where this was filmed, there's no point. Um, you know, people always compare the show to The Wire, and I find that a bit silly to do. Um, but I will say one thing that they ha- do have uh, in common is that location um, aspect where when you're watching The Wire, that shit's filmed in Baltimore, and you know it's filmed in Baltimore, right? And when Top Boy's filmed in London, you know it's filmed in London. Um, talking about the Dalston, uh, uh going up to Dalston. Island Dogs and all that, it makes it makes it just that much... The, realistic locations just make it better. Um, I, I feel like that, is the, that should be the case with everything. Um, obviously, some shows just don't choose to not to put that much effort into it. Um, but I do respect the fact that Top Boy um, has always just put that effort into actually, you know, finding an actual place and having locals invested in it as well. Um, I remember when I went to the, um, uh, for the season, uh, for the season uh, three, four, for the, how many seasons are there? Five. For the season four uh, premiere on the day, they had like an event at the Truman Brewery in Brick Lane. And um, there was like a bunch of Q and A's and Ronan Bennett was uh, the creator and writer was uh, one of them. And uh, I remember he was talking about, um, you know, dedication to location and uh, having locals you know be part of the show as well and i think some of the actors talked about it as well um it's a very fascinating wrinkle and uh, i feel like it's a it's something that really just just makes top boy that little bit better um and it ages it and it and i think it ages it very interestingly um i watched the i watched the first two i was watching the first um the first season of Top Boy and um, the Channel Four version, and um, is um, obviously the locations different, but it's so fascinating how they how they visualise it um, with you know music and you know just covering regular people doing stuff. I I, just, I really I really rate it. I really love that. And uh, yeah, man, that's that's a very big positive about just why I love Top Boy and why Top Boy is um, such a respected show on that front. Let's jump right into the next TV topic, and this one's about Suits, my boys, Suits. I love this show. Um, I was watching, I was really into the show um, when I was in university, um, just watching it. I was, I was kind of watching it during the, during like, 2016, 17. I watched it throughout those two years. Um, I actually didn't finish the show. Fun, I, I don't know why I haven't. It just, um, it just, I don't know, just fell off it, and I never bothered to catch up. Um, but yeah, I'm, 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 I'll get to it at some point. I think I'm at, I think I'm like midway through like season six or something. Um, but yeah, I really respect suits for Garlis and you know, it's, it's very, very, the replay value is so good. It's just so, uh, the characters are so, uh, just, they got such, uh, they're so, they're so confident all the time and. Uh, they just like talk to each other in such like confident ways, and it's so fascinating. I just, I just, it makes me smile just thinking about it. It's such a fucking elite show. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's been popping off apparently. Um, the people have been for some reason just watching Suits now. Um, the viewership has just skyrocketed in recent months, and uh, I'm here for it. Big up Suits. Just, you know, it's a show that I think like uh finished a couple of years ago, but the fact that it's um, you know, just caught a of, of boon all of a sudden. is cool. Um, so let's get into this article uh, via Vox, uh, written by Asia Romano. It's called Seuss is an unlikely time capsule for a troubled decade. So uh, a little bit of a little bit of analyses here, I, I suspect. In 2023 and every it's 2023 and everyone is watching Seuss. The question is, which Seuss are they watching? In one corner, we have Seuss season one through four. The absurdist morality play. The concept, a high-powered Manhattan law firm and the cutthroat corporate lawyers who do their clients' bidding. The title, a reference to the sleazy characters, the glitzy aesthetic and the fact that, unlike most legal dramas, Suits rarely ends up in a courtroom. The catch, one of these hard-charging lawyers, bushy-tailed eager beaver Mike Ross, apprentice to the dashing awful dodger Harvey Specter, isn't actually an attorney at all. In the other corner, we have Seuss, seasons 5 through 8, just ignore season nine and the short-lived one uh, one season spin-off Pearson, neither of which included is included on Netflix, where this culture-wide rewatch is taking place, in which the show becomes self-aware Jetsons the moral antipathy of previous seasons and puts itself on trial. And that's probably why I've, I've, I fell off after season six. That's probably why, because you know, after Mike went to jail, I was just like kind of I was kind of going, "What are we doing here?" But anyway um it makes sense it's kind of like the same with house actually um like the first three seasons of house were relatively procedural and just like you know a b a b c story um and the a a story is always like the case and the b story is like the characters and etc cetera, etc cetera. but then after season three it kind of just went existential i guess i don't know how you want to word it but um, anyway it's it's interesting how shows evolve Seuss never got his cultural due during the nine season it aired on the USA Network, in America, obviously, until 2023. His main claim to fame was boosting the career of one time princess Meghan Markle. Yeah, and currently stands poised to become Netflix's biggest streaming hit of all time. After a viral TikTok video that made the rounds in May sparked renewed interest in the show, which has since been setting streaming records so wild that they, they sound like they're completely made up. This TikTok clip showcases the key scene of the entire show—the moment Harvey, Gabriel Mack, and Mike Patrick J. Adams meet, and Harvey falls in love. <laughs> uh, falls in love at first recitation with Mike, his polymath brain and his photographic memory. Although Mike is a drop-out bike messenger who's literally in the middle of running a drug deal when they meet, Harvey hires him on the spot to work for his law firm Pearson. Uh, The two of them construct an elaborate lie to create the illusion that Mike graduated from Harvard Law. Harvey's drive to keep Mike by his side against all odds fuels the plot for most of the show's eight-year run. Suits may be the unexpected hit show of 2023, but it premiered in 2011, in a world that felt profoundly different from the one it it finished with in 2019. The result is an odd little time capsule. Over the course of the show, the world changed rapidly, and Suits responded to and evolved with that change so much so that we can follow the trajectory of our own cultural evolution within its seasons. Suits so was born out of an era where nihilistic, nihilistic absurdism dominated TV across a broad range of shows, from Always Sunny to Scandal. I, God, Scandal. God damn. I, I, I don't think... Scandal's one of those shows where I feel like if I watched it now, I'd be just horribly cringed, because I used to watch it, like really fucking into it like me and my mum were really into it and um, same with How to Get With Murder we were really into it and I think we only didn't I think we only stopped watching it at a certain point because I just went to university and I can be asked to keep watching it and I don't think she could either um, but oh God, I don't think I don't think Scandal aged well I'm just mentally not figuring it out don't think it would but I don't even want to test it anyway the oblivious ethos of that early season, Suits, may be key through its renewed popularity. Philosophically, it's escapist comfort food mixed with geeky pop culture refs and far too much reverence for Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> oh, so true, to be fair. Yes, the latter era of the show. That's really fascinating. Suits was born out of a society that means performative uncaring, and it was all too fun and silly to take seriously, until it wasn't. As it progressed, Suits absorbed the ripples of political and cultural unease that characterised the tens. 2010. In the show's highest rated episode, per IMDb votes, Faith, Mike's childhood priest, tells him that he might think of God as consequences. Suits' gods are capricious, but when they demand teeth, a bitch bear pay up. Suits' first half follows a law firm of clearly drawn office character tropes. No-nonsense boss Jessica Pearson, Gina Torres, The Goat... Sh- god, I love Jessica Pearson. Oh my god. Oh, I love her so much. Uh, ultimate Secretary Donna, Sarah Rafferty, volatile wannabe partner, Lewis Litt, Rick Hoffman, and long-suffering long-suffer- paralegal-turned-ultimate girlfriend, Rachel Markle. Uh, they all have one thing in common. Their lives revolve around the firm, eventually known as Pearson Specter Litt, or PSL. That means whether uh, that whether they know it or not, their lives revolve around keeping Mike's secret. Despite the flimsiness of the premise and the complete lack of logic about, well, anything, the first half of Suits fully milks the tension between Mike's go-getter enthusiasm for the law and the fact that he's flagrantly break- breaking it. Between the silly high-sex drama, Suits' procedural formula deals in high-power pettiness. Each episode sees the firm defending a shady corporation against other shady another shady corporation, going back and forth over a series of legal manoeuvrings that allow them to trade quips and drop highly improbable interpretations of the law. See, I'm smiling because it is so dumb. It's such a dumbass show, but it's just, oh, so fucking good. It's literally, oh, it's it's candy. It's fucking candy. It's so slick. It's so rich for no fucking reason. And, oh, it's just so rich. I love it. Our antiheroes usually finagle their way into some kind of moral higher ground. But not without stretching their credibility and our credulity. This suits is a frothy treat in the pantheon of self serious legal dramas. And thanks to the increasingly outlandish things Harvey and Mike do to get away with Mike's crime, that like hacking the Harvard database and printing a fake Harvard degree, we never have to take any of it too seriously. Except then we do. Season four begins a gradual tonal shift characterized by four warnings of disaster for the firm as well as increased dysfunctionality among the ensemble. The show's blatantly anti-Semitic early-season portrayal of Lewis Litt actually gets worse for a while because seasons four and five doubled down on all of his worst traits in the name of drama. Those traits are all heinous stereotypes. Despite Rick Hoffman's best efforts at humanising Lewis, he's mean-tempered, buffoonish, weak, disloyal, effeminate, and selfish above all else. The show presents him as spiteful and vindictive, a cheap, greedy, money-hoarding backstabber who's obsessed with power. At one point, he plays the role of Shylock, as if the theme couldn't get more explicit. Any time the screws are put to him, Lewis turns volatile and vengeful. It's a tired, troubling routine, and unfortunately, even after the show writers finally realise what they've done and rapidly rehabilitate his character in later seasons, the subtext that he could be the firm's weak link, more of an existential threat even, even than Mike's who's literally not a lawyer, never fully goes away. In season 5, which aired in 2015 60, to the tonal change becomes even more pronounced. Harvey, who's hitherto prided himself on his weaponized superficiality, starts going to therapy to deal with his many abandonment issues, and someone finally prosecutes Mike for fraud. The development forces Suits into a much darker iteration of his implied ethics schematic worldview. Uh, by this time, Mike is finally facing trial in the latter half of the season 5. He and Harvey have gone from season one lawyers and quote-unquote lawyers who proudly draw their moral lines and refuse to cross them to people willing to commit blackmail, forgery, perjury and beyond. Do whatever you have to do, Harvey tells Mike, as they get more and more desperate to avoid prison. Just don't get caught. However, any time Mike and Harvey use their typical tactics, strong-arming, bargaining, one-upmanship, to shut down the case, opposing prosecuting attorney Gibbs, Leslie Hope, so mounts them by relying on the unshakable truth. Mike isn't a lawyer. Mike isn't a lawyer. Yet, one by one, all the other players at Pearson Spector line up behind him, committing to performing that, the, the liar that he is. The world of that liar keeps expanding. By the time Mike is finally exposed, no fewer than 13 recurring cast members know he never went to Harvard and are casually walking around covering for him. Suits thus becomes an apt and revealing, if entirely unwitting, metaphor for the broader epistemic crisis. Goddamn. uh, uh, That's come to define much of the modern age, in which people who are otherwise rational find themselves moving in an entirely different version of reality. From climate denialism, to COVID scepticism, to the factual outcome of elections. Just as many of Trump's supporters started out espousing extremist nonsense for laughs, yet wound up believing their own rhetoric... Mike and Harvey, who get together initially almost as a troll, ultimately come to believe their own reality distortion. Mike becomes so convinced that he's an actual lawyer that he tries to take on a new case while he's on trial for pretending to be a lawyer. Every time he careens into the fact that no one will testify to knowing him at Harvard because no one knew him because he never went to Harvard, he reacts with a dazed headshake, As though he can't quite believe they're inconveniencing him by refusing to help him bend the truth. It's difficult to watch him spend the back half of the season five frantically trying to frantically trying and failing to coerce, beg, extort, and bribe witnesses uh, witnesses to help him without being reminded of Trump asking the Georgia Secretary of State to find eleven thousand seven hundred eighty votes. Oh, this is so depressingly accurate. Oh, this makes me kind of hate myself, Loki, because I I feel like I've been uh, th- there's a there's going to come a time where I'm going to really just properly wax poetic about um, um about these shows um, that, you know, cover high class individuals like The White Lotus, Succession, even Billions, right? I love Billions. I love Suits. Those are two very genuine examples of just these shows that are just... About rich people and they get away with shit because they're rich, right? And it's not because they're smart per se; it's just because they're fucking rich. Just be real. um And they're often and they're people of note in their universe. um And I just I kind of hate that trend because it's 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 coming at the expense of you know of shit like kind of shit like Top Boy to be fair, and even Top Boy itself. Not to get into Top Boy. Um, top boy um, uh, 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 critique, but the Netflix version is very, very not romanticised, but it sexes it up a bit. It is compared to the Channel Four version, which is pretty much modern kitchen sink. Um, the 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 Netflix one really just sexes it up. You know, they go to Morocco, all that shit, and they very internationalise it, and it kind of you know. Kind of gentrifies it in some way, um, but anyway, yeah. There's, there's, there's going to come a time where I'm really just going to fucking go off on those kind of shows, but I kind of need to watch him first to actually get to that point. But anyway, this this is definitely part of the issue, and I'm a culprit. I love Suits. I love Billions. Like, I'm I, I think Billions is coming back for one more season. Um, I think. Uh, I'm really waiting on that because Jesus Christ is so fucking good. Um, uh, but yeah. Anyway. Wain on you, Damien Lewis. I guess. Anyway, uh, where was that? Uh, for the writers, clearly, uh, for the writers, clearly want us to root for Harvey and Mike to agree that Mike is, as one client's mother insists, innocent in his heart. It's harder for a post-Trump audience to do that than it would be for a suite of summer children of the Obama era. Harvey and Mike might deserve mercy after their sins have been acknowledged and confessed. But innocent, uh, they are not. And Suits, for its first six seasons, isn't interested in rehabilitating them. It only takes them a few episodes after Harvey finding engineers and early prison release for Mike in season six before the two of them are back in, back to doing highly unethical things to get what they want. Suits tries to create a world where the law isn't reality because it can always be manipulated for the right price. The show wants us to believe that since everyone in this universe is cutthroat and amoral by default. These guys are heroic for at least trying to do the right thing some of the time. Except when they don't. In other words, it's vibes, not truth, that really matter. Which makes this entire abrupt turnaround in season 7 such an interesting reveal. Not for what it says about Seuss, but what it says about the rest of us. Throughout Seuss' first six seasons, its characters are essentially characters whose relationships with themselves and each other are mainly shallow and undeveloped. Uh, yeah, undeveloped, or underdeveloped. Uh, the show's female characters suffer from uh, suffer the most from this underwritten tendency, particularly Gina Torres' Jessica, who never really gets to be more than a plot device. Torres' captain spin-off, uh, Pearson, Lord from Suits' seventh-season finale, but only lasted a single season. It's hard not to wonder if that was partly because the writers had so little to build on. And though the show lives and dies with the light chemistry between Mike and Harvey, not even Gabriel macked. Uh, deep commitment to sending flirtatious smiles in Adam's direction can fully convince us that Mike deserves to be where he's at. Season 7's writers seem to have realised all of this abruptly. It's probably no coincidence it was the first full season to follow uh, the 2016 election. Once it has straightened out the giant plot wrinkle it started with, the show goes full throttle redemption arc, working overtime to deepen its characters and repair all of its negatives at once. Newly born again and somehow (laughs) I love how this is Formatted brackets somehow unbrackets, um, brackets nonsensically unbrackets, um, admitted to the bar for real, real. Uh, Mike begins tackling large scale pro bono cases with a social justice edge. Lewis, i um, actually, I might be on season seven then, because I think I've seen those episodes. Um, so yeah, I might be midway through season seven. There you go. Uh, Lewis, we learn, uh, has actually been in therapy all along. The show fast-tracks him through personal growth arc that sees him almost instantly learning to put other people before himself. Donna, whose cold character till now has been being loyal to Harvey, sudden get, suddenly gets dreams and lines like, I think I regret putting Harvey over myself. Season 7 can't stop telling you how feminist it is. Quote, a man can't swing a dead cat around here without hitting a strong-willed woman, unquote. Rachel's father says at one point, big up Wendell Pierce, who plays Rachel's father, love me some Wendell Pierce, goats, Uh, When in the seventh season finale Mike finally tells Harvey this is who I am is who I've always been meaning that he's an ethical do-good lawyer who only wants to take pro bono work for the betterment of humanity. Harvey is too good to remind him what a giant retcon this is for both Both human pursuits. It helps that the show doesn't have to keep Mike on the straight straight and narrow for Instead, it gives Mike and Rachel a season 7 finale send-off, providing them both with a chance to sail into the sunset as pro bono lawyers. Rachel's fictional wedding aired in 20- April 2018, just three weeks before Michael's actual fairytale wedding. That send-off also doubles as another reset. As season 8 rolls around, the remaining crew is right back to corporate schemes and stratagems, Stratagems, I guess. now headed up by Rachel's dad, Wendell Pierce, There you go. who manages to be both fun and terrifying as the new top brass. Still suits now self-aware can never completely retreat to its former malaise of substituting movie quotes and pop culture cred for human connection of empathy. By the show's end it's all grown up, and if we all liked it a little better when it was younger, obnoxious, and oblivious, well perhaps we all liked ourselves a little better in twenty eleven too. And yeah, you know, I get it. I get it. I really do. I I really get it. I I just think it's just one of those <sighs> I, I, I don't know if I can break this down in like, you know, I'm about 50 minutes into this episode and I'm just like, I don't know if I've left myself enough time to actually break this down properly but, um, because I don't like stopping and, you know, thinking and then coming back to you with a thought like, I, I kind of want to freestyle. I, I've i always freestyled my thoughts right after reading the article, you know, Box Fresh, right? I, think, I feel like that's kind of a, there's a there's a there's a worthiness in that, um, but yeah, I kind of want to think about this for a bit because it really got me thinking. Just of, and it w- help. It probably helps if I actually watch the fucking season seven onwards. And I I I I'm gonna try and do so at some point in time. And I'll, I'll try and I don't know maybe get back. I don't know with another Icorn suits depending on if it's still popular or not. But uh, yeah, this ain't this ain't this this conversation ain't over. I really wanna. Put a pin in this in some fashion because, um, you know, I feel like a lot of shows have probably done this, right? Where it starts off just super sugary, um, probably bad for your health, right? And then it suddenly goes, Oh shit, we're actually bad, um, we should probably, you know, switch shit up. And you know, <laughs> I, I don't know whether this makes me a bad person, right? Because I feel uh, not on the whole watching the show element because obviously I don't I'm not, I'm not gonna feel bad for watching a show right but I'm, I'm even more the specific bit about Lewis and the fact that his I don't know what they call it but the Jewishisms that were just overt um, I hated Lewis in the first few seasons in those seasons where he was overtly you know just Jewish caricature. Um, does that make me bad? I, d- I don't know. It's just, it's, it's really, it made me feel really awkward reading that. I was just like, oh fuck, I actually hated Lewis to fucking, I really hated Lewis, um, during those seasons. Um, and then, you know, then he, I, you know, I didn't mind the effeminateness, right? I just found him just a, a complete cunt to people. It's just like, bro, why are you just barking at youngers? Like, do you not have something else to do, bro? Like, you are wild right now. Um, and he was doing some demonic shit. Um, but you know him being basically cuckolded by Harvey for most of the time, that that shit was kind of, you know, okay. Like let's let's can we not do that? Cause that's a bit weird. Um, but yeah, man. And um, you know, I love Gina Torres as an actress. Um, I love Jessica Pearson as of as like a baseline character because she is underwritten. Like she is literally underwritten. It's but fucking how her fits are so good! Oh my gosh! Like whoever does the fashion, and whoever whoever like f- did built the set of that place. I fucking love the set of the place as well. Of um of Pierce Inspector Lip, I really love that. Um, I love the visuals of the show. I love the cockiness. But yeah, it's a very interesting. Um, it is a very interesting time capsule. I think the yeah the the point of the article is that is the time capsule, and I feel like it's a perfect fucking it really is genuinely that. We finish off with a quick flower giving, quick giving of flowers here. Um, this is a very, uh, I think, short article. Of, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not that long, but uh, it's it's very quick. But um, it's it's poignant, and I guess to the point of just me wanting to talk about this. Um, so yeah, it's called uh, it's by iNews, written by Ed Power. It's called not it's not just historic first for a jazz album. The win is also a triumph for. Uh, fuck, I'm reading the sub. Mercury Prize 2023 Ezra Collective's win epitomises everything great about music. Right, that's the title. Right, fucking. <laughs> oh gosh. Anyway, but let's get into it because in you know it's it's 31 years of the Mercury Prize. Um, you know, very notable wins. Um, Simbi last year. Um, sometimes it might be introvert winning. Um, I'm ve- I was very 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 surprised. I don't know if it's just because um, is that like the winner can't be in the running next year? I don't know if there's like a rules for it but little sims could have easily put no thank you in and that could have won as well again because um, that album is fucking great um but you know um ezra collective won for their album and um where i'm meant to be and uh, it's well deserved and it's the first jazz album to win the mercury prize in its 31 year history long overdue and a big, big W for UK Jazz. I've been bigging up UK Jazz for the past few years. I feel like I've gotten into it a very, very perfect time. Um, I think I got into it right as it was just about to properly get into, you know, making names and making waves across the world. And uh, this is just a really big moment, really big moment for UK Jazz. So uh, big ups to the whole Everyone involved in UK jazz, the musicians, the people that big it up, like the likes of Giles Peterson and all that. Um, Yeah, big ups to anybody. So let's get into the article, just nice and quick. History has been made at the Mercury Prize, with a jazz album winning the accolade for the first time in the awards 30-year history. But this fact fades into irrelevance uh, when considering what what the victory uh, by Ezra Collective in their LP, where I'm meant to be, truly represents. It's a win for togetherness. And comradeship as time when technology has conspired to make us feel ever further apart. In his acceptance speech on behalf of the Quintet, drummer Femi Collioso, uh used the word fam for family over and over. He was referring in the first instance to Ezra Collective's network of musical self support. Musicians met as teens at a jazz program by double bassist Gary Crosby at London South Bank Centre, as people and players they've come of age together. However, fam also references the kinship that runs through their songs. Their giddy soundscapes take jazz as a starting point, only to mutate thrillingly into soul, reggae, and Afrobeat. They welcome collaborators with Open Arms 2, Where I'm It has guest-turned from rappers Sampa The Great, Koji Radical, and they have studied with, studied with greats such as the late Afrobeat pioneer Tony Allen. As anyone who has caught as a creative in the flesh will know, their music celebrates community. There is a genuine attempt to break down the barrier between audience and performers. Ezra Collective shows are a group hug where the crowds are as essential as the musicians. It's hard to think of anywhere further away from the corporate overpriced modern concert experience. That belief in demolishing artificial boundaries goes beyond performance. They give talks at schools and have pioneered a ticketing system at shows where people in wo- working in health and education receive discounts. Beat that, Coldplay and Taylor Swift. In an industry where it is oh, too often ultimately just about the money, Ezra Collective have demonstrated there's another way, that there's an alternative to overpriced VIP packages or the digital purgatory of the Ticketmaster holding pen. All that being said, there is still a significance of what I'm meant meant to be, uh, where I'm meant to be? Okay, misspelled there, where I'm meant to be, not where I'm I'm meant to be, becoming the first Jasmine of the Mercury. In its early history, the prize generally leaned towards every scruffy critic's favourite genre of indie rock, and while the Mercury has become far more open-minded and eclectic across the past decade in particular, it's still hard not to be cheered by uh, what this year's winner have achieved. Ezra Collective quite represent the very best of where we are now, Mercury Judge Jam Supernova said when announcing the destination of the Gong. And she's right, amidst the shortlist we've lost to recommend, Ezra Collective epitomise everything great about music in 2023. Their sound is generous, warm, and excitingly restless. Theirs is a Mercury wind that will restore your faith in human nature and even up to a point in the soulless and corporate post COVID music business. <clears throat> is it um is it late to say um that I could have seen Ezra Collective Dream cross the tracks and I didn't <laughs> <laughs> Um I forgot who I saw in uh, in place of them. Um but the only reason I didn't um was because I I don't like hitting the main stage. Um I like to hit it as least as possible because you know it's a music festival, right? And there's so many other stages and you know some of them obviously you know, uh, medium size, and obviously mainline, is supposed to be, you know, for the for the big for the big finale. Um, in this case, this year was uh, a some Pack and Knowledge, and before that it was um Masago, um. But I think it was Adi Oasis I saw instead of Ezra Collective, and if it was her, I'm fine with that because I fucking love me some Adi Oasis. Oasis. is great. I love Adi Oasis so much. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, I I well, that aside, I don't know why I admit that, but um, yeah, it's. I do really respect those collective musically. Um, I do like the album. The album's very good. It's very just oh, so bright, so colourful, um, so expressive. I love the features on it. Cody, Ra- Cody Radical, uh, Sam for the Grey, like I mentioned. Um, I could have sworn Emily Sandé was on there as well, uh, which is also a big W, not fucking having the queen of our sovereignty on there as well. Um, but oh, God damn, this is such a... I can't... I can't tell you how much of a dub this is um of just having this happen um because and neo as well in loving outer space so as features go those four artists are so high in my just it's so high on my list it's just I, I wouldn't be surprised if um this album ends up in my album list at the end of the year i would not be surprised it's definitely probably going to make the short list um if it wouldn't make the top uh, well I try and do like 10 to 15 but sometimes I've gone to ten, twenty, 20 and 25 in some cases so we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes in December in my December listening in my what's good hiatus um, but yeah man if you haven't listened as a collective um, don't don't be one of those people that just think who jazz uh, noises uh, like you know my mum sometimes does and I get what she means but it's a matter of um, it's a matter of taste, obviously, but I feel like Ezra Collective are so inviting as a musicians, um, and their sound is so wide-ranging. You can't just call it jazz. It's just not. It's it's jazz fusion, um, and it fuses a lot of fucking things, and I love that. Um, you know, and that's kind of why I, I, I thought that um, Moses Boyd should have um, had a should have been the one, to be honest, uh, to win it, uh, a few years ago. I'm trying to, I'm just going to quickly look up before I finish here. finish up here. Um, the Mercury prize for that year, because if you listen to that Moses Boyd album, Stranger in the Fiction, you'll get exactly why I say that because, well, in the same way that, um, uh, in the same way that the Mercury prize, uh, the uh, same way that Ezra Collective won the Mercury Prize for that reason of uh, uh of having that eclecticism, um so to speak. Um, God damn, they really just gave it to like fucking indie rockers, didn't they? Anyway, let me try and uh, find it right here. So, uh, 2021, uh, 2020, nope, 2019, I think was it 2019? No, it wasn't 2019? Where's Moses? Where's Moses? Ah, there we go. Okay, so 2020. So he was so it was Moses boy. Dark Matter. Uh, the one that won it was Michael Kiwanuka's Kiwanuka, which is good shout. Um, he also got Kano hoody- hoodies all summer. Um, Stormzy's Heavy's the Head. Charlie XEX. Dua Lipa. Um, and others that I haven't spun. But I do feel honestly, I I I would I'd probably pick Dark Matter over Ki- over Kiwanuka. I love Kiwanuka. Very great album, but Dark Matter. There's no, there was, there, there is, there was, and hasn't ever been an album like Moses Boyd Dark Matter. Like the the way he does, he blends jazz and also shit like Garage is fucking and Grime is absolutely absurd. It it doesn't make sense. Give that a listen. I highly recommend that. Um, also give obviously as a collective a spin and support UK jazz man there are so many good artists there are so many good jazz artists out here in the UK doing bits um, and I'm here for it I'm here to champion all of that and with that said I shall finish there ladies and gentlemen from the 5th and Podcast Network I'm Richard Taylor this has been what's good intro music was too much by Vanilla thanks to your music for the bit to use uh, shout to Nappy High uh, for the charismatic uh, for using uh let me use charismatic beinsaloo. Um you can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies nice and gentlemen.